glitters as gold? I'm sorry, what? All that glitters is gold? No, you need to sing it. I, you don't want me to sing anything. I promise I do, you. I'm no. <laughs> what? That's what he does. He oh. gets and then just suddenly you're no. on a recording you didn't expect to be. No. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. Today I'm joined by Josh Clayton, Managing Director here in our Boston office. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. So looking back at the history, you were on The Bike Shed a long time ago, back uh -huh. in June of 2015 on episode 20, which had the fantastic title, Intentionally Excruciatingly Painful. Looking over the topic, it seemed like it was about testing, which I don't know how that title and testing, like we like testing, so. I want to listen to it now. I'm hoping it's like... <laughs> It's excruciating because it's excruciating if your tests fail. Like, yeah, I think it's that and it's fixing. It looks like there's a lot of fixing complications in tests and things like mystery guests are listed in the testing pyramid and then different tooling. So it seems like that describes the world and then you came along mm -hmm. to save us from that world. Yes. You want it to be painful to, to break things. Yeah, that works. Anyway, we should all listen to that yes. episode and find yeah. out what exactly you were talking about then. But yeah, since that time, a lot has changed. Uh-huh. It's a whole new world. It is. So, yeah, to quickly talk about a, a few things in my side of the aisle, I just got back from Boston React Conf. Mm -hmm. How's that? Which, it was great. I have actually gone to not too many conferences overall, either as an attendee or in this case, I was uh, lucky enough to be a speaker. So that was a great experience. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of speaking at conferences, at least conceptually, because it's one shot. I get to introduce myself to everyone in the room, and then I'm done. Yep. I find that I struggle with the, like, bunch of people are milling about grabbing coffee or whatever and going up and being like, hi, I'm Chris. Do you want to talk about technology or friendship or anything? But the speaking allows you to just get it out of the way. Right. I was actually also, it worked out very well for me that I got to speak second. So that's really nice. Got it done. That makes it was it, yeah, out of the way. It, easy. it was a two day conference. So I was done pretty much immediately. And yes. I just got to relax and enjoy. Yep. But the conference was fantastic. I've been enjoying React more as a technology. I've been exploring it now for a few years, and I think we at ThoughtBot have been exploring it now for a few years and seeing adoption and interest grow. Yep. But it was really interesting to see the nature of the talks at the conference. So React inherently is sort of a, it's the view layer primarily, right. and it leaves a lot of things elsewhere. And so seeing the conversations that happened, like very little of it was actually about React mm -hmm. specifically. So I spoke about GraphQL, and actually there were a lot of folks speaking about GraphQL in yeah. one form or another. But then there was fun stuff about performance and styling and all the other cool stuff that's going on in that world. Like time to render or just like performance in the DOM? All sorts of things. So okay. time to render definitely being part of it, saying things like a couple of folks talked about Lighthouse, which is Google's mm -hmm. performance. I think it's the Chrome team specifically. It's a performance analysis tool mm -hmm. that looks at things like time to render, but also time to interactive. Right. Um, discussions about server-side rendering and whether or not you want to do that, which React, again, was sort of, they made that easier. Right. You can just render your whole thing to a string, but then subtleties of then like, turning it back on on the client right. side and making it interactive. Yep. But also in the sense of, there's a recent thing that came out in the world of React called Suspense. I think it's not necessarily out yet. Okay. But it's a different way of splitting up rendering and allowing, it's an odd paradigm, but it seems to allow for much more performant interactions. Mm -hmm. So if you do something that kicks off an API request, when does it show the loading indicator? Because it turns out if you show the loading indicator immediately, but the response responds in like 50 milliseconds, having the flash yeah, of the loading flash, indicator and then nothing, it's right. Yeah. So 
the React team actually did some really great work to enable some performance optimizations and enable this suspense's title for the feature, I want to say. Okay. There's a great talk. I can link to that that Dan Abramov, one of the React core team at React Europe a bit back, talked about. And then some mm-hmm. folks were starting to play with this and explore it and say, like, how do we bring it into our apps and enable basically perceived performance being the measure that everyone seemed to be talking about, which right. I think is useful, rather than like, how big are our requests? Right. That's a very good thing to look at, but it's not the thing that matters at the end of the day. Right. What matters is how your users perceive it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, overall, it was, a, it was a great experience. React seems to be an incredibly strong community, I will say. Mm-hmm. So I was happy to get to go there and speak. I wrote a Vim plugin. As yeah, I saw it. It's, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I was writing a talk, so I did the obvious thing, which was I procrastinated by writing a Vim plugin mm-hmm. to facilitate giving the talk. Of course, as one does. But I think I'm trying to release it out to the world, and so it should be out by the time this episode goes live. Mm-hmm. But it's based on, there's a thing called Code Surfer that people have been okay. poking around with, and Spectacle, so they're both JavaScript-like presentation tools, and mm-hmm. they both have a feature where you can conditionally highlight certain lines of code. So it allows, if you're giving a presentation and you're saying like, and now if you'll squint at lines two through seven. Right, you can draw attention to those. You now can actually lines. like dynamically highlight that. So I wanted that, but in Vim, because I want everything in Vim. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out it was actually doable. It was less of a hack than I thought it was going to be. And it actually worked really well. I, I would say the uh, response to my talk was 50-50. Oh, GraphQL seems pretty interesting. Uh-huh. I can see how that fits well with React. And what was that Vim sorcery that you were doing? Right. I need that. So I hope to give that to the world soon. That's exciting. I think in the context of that, and particularly with your view as managing director, I wanted to have a conversation mm-hmm. about what do we see happening in the world of web development? What's, yeah. What are the trends? What's going on? Yeah. In Boston, I think a lot of our clients are still reaching for Ruby on Rails. There was definitely an uptick, I think, as Elixir and Phoenix kind of began gaining popularity. And I think there was also some strong desire, oh, it's a functional language that's different than Ruby and it's really fast, so maybe let's explore that. So in like 2016, 2017, there was definitely a shift towards Elixir and Phoenix for a number of our clients. It went well. They're both, Elixir is a great language. It's very familiar for mm-hmm. Rubyists. We had Herman on a few episodes back and mm-hmm. we were talking, Herman's particularly fond of Elixir and I was sort of coming at it from the angle of Elixir and Phoenix are just a different rails and yeah. quote unquote better in some ways. But Herman did a great job of pointing me at some of the subtler features yes. like Erlang and the OTP and the actor system and mm-hmm. all of that that actually make it's not just a different rails, but it right. is in fact a, a different paradigm that mm-hmm. we can do rails like work. in. Yes. So at the surface level, it's it's very easy to draw those similarities, but I think especially as you dig deeper into some of the language features, it's like, oh, there's way more power here than I really maybe know what to do with initially. But again, as you learn any language or framework, the more comfortable you become, and I think that the more willing you are to kind of try what is specific to a particular language or framework. Mm-hmm. And I think with Elixir and Phoenix specifically, like Herman had mentioned, yeah, OTP and gen servers and some of the other stuff there is really, really powerful. But you need to know when and how to use it. Mm-hmm. So, As with any good tool. Yes. Great responsibility. But I think what you're describing of there was sort of a peak in interest and popularity, mm-hmm. and then that's leveled off a bit, but I think it has leveled off, and there's still right. a, like a nice persistent hum of interest around Elixir and Phoenix. Right. 
not necessarily at the level of that. There was sort of a perfect storm of interest on on the webs and yes. even this podcast, I think, bringing some light to it. One of our more popular episodes actually is related to Elixir and Phoenix. Yeah. So there's the uptick there. As you had mentioned, obviously React has, has been growing in popularity, React Native as well. We've seen for a number of our clients, React Native works very well for what they're trying to accomplish because it allows for quick, rapid iteration in technologies that the web development team is already comfortable with. And for a lot of what we're doing, like we're not building games, right? We're not building, you know, technologies or so applications. So you say that you're referencing the like the performance benefits that you get from going to truly native. Right. It's not we're yeah, that. it's not Unity or anything like that. It's actual it's typically CRUD type applications where we're rendering information served from a web server and we're maybe sending data back. Mm-hmm. And so React Native, I think, is very well suited to do that, especially with early stage companies where they don't have kind of unlimited budgets. They yep. need to find out very quickly whether their product is going to succeed or not. And being able to leverage native platforms distribute to the app store without spending exorbitant amounts of money building out an entire mobile development team as well as a backend team building out APIs. Yep. I think that's that's very appealing. I'm a very much a long run optimist on uh React Native, although I think we're in an interesting point in React Native's history. Mm -hmm. The React team at Facebook recently spent, I think it was almost a year doing a fundamental rewrite. I think it was a ground up rewrite of React, which speaks well to the API that they designed Mm -hmm. because they were able to, it was pure API compatibility and it was a refactoring under the hood, but fundamentally restructured things and allowed for some of the performance things that I was mentioning earlier, suspense and all of that. But now that they've done that, it sounds like they're shifting their focus and React Native is going to get a similar treatment. Uh, like, let's rethink the, like there's the threaded model of the background thread for right, all right. Of the that work and then having the UI thread. And they're, I think, revisiting and reevaluating how they're doing that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm super excited to see where they get to, particularly that will help with things like gesture recognition and some of those like deeper platform features. Right. But did you see the Airbnb announcement about moving away from React Native? I did. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean in like, I, I guess the way I frame that question is like, ah, Airbnb has said this and therefore right. we must respond. And I don't believe that, but it right. is, they, they said a lot. And they actually, I think did a really good job of like, it was five different posts or sequence mm-hmm. or something like that, discussing some of the difficulties they'd run into and right. why they've chosen to move off it. But Yep. Each company is different and where they are, the number of engineers they have on the team, the problems that they're facing with the particular technologies they choose. And as they grow and experience these pains, they're not illegitimate. Like there are reasons that they're running into these issues and they do need to address them mm-hmm. in order to provide a level of experience that they're comfortable with based on that stage of the company. Yep. But not every company is in that exact same spot at the exact same time. Very few and companies so it, are in the, exactly, at the size exactly. and like brand life cycle point that mm-hmm. Airbnb is at. Right. And so I think to say, well, Airbnb is doing X, so we should do X. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily what people should take away from the post. It's more... Given their situation, this is what happened. These were the technology decisions that they chose to make based on that experience. How might that color how I look at the experience that I want to provide from the product that I'm working on, given where the product is? Yep. I think two of the things, if I'm remembering correctly, that they highlighted were animations and mm-hmm. 
gesture recognition, right. those sort of things, and being able to have complete freedom in the brand fidelity that they could get from mm -hmm. the mobile app experience. And I totally get that for them. And again, I think some of the work that my understanding that the React Native team at Facebook is going to be doing will help with that in the future. So right. even if that is a concern, I'm hoping that like down the road, people won't have to make that decision. Mm -hmm. But again, I think most companies, that should not be a deciding factor in the, right. the time to market, the ability to have your team shared across web and mobile. Mm -hmm. Those are very interesting to me. Right. One of the things that I've thought about for a long time with React Native is I'm a web developer. That's primarily what I do. But at the end of the day, like I like to make user interfaces, mm -hmm. actually, is how I would describe it. I'm not a designer. That's that's never been in my core skill set. And when I say that, I mean doing mock-ups in other tools and then mapping that in and doing brand and typography and color and things like that. That's not my skill set. Yep. But the fact that mobile wasn't a platform that I could really work on, that it was different, that mobile mm -hmm. developers were different, when I would have conversations with mobile developers, they're doing the same sort of work I am. They just happen to be on a different platform. Right. So the idea that React Native or Flutter or I feel like there are a few others that are in this space now. Mm -hmm. But the idea that it, it opens up those platforms to me and now I can use my same techniques and bring the same thought process, architecture, et cetera, mm -hmm. into those platforms, like I'm into that. I yeah. want that to work. Yeah. Somewhat selfishly, I guess. But yeah. No, I mean I think I think it's it's totally legitimate. I think being able to build products for the web, you get that instant gratification mm -hmm. of like, I can write some code and then I can open it up in a browser and see it working. Even if it visually is maybe less appealing than other mm -hmm. web applications out there, it's it's exciting to be able to see what you're doing. And I think the same thing for like a CLI. It's like, oh, I'm going to write some software and oh, yeah. now I can interact with it. Yeah, I mean, a CLI has a user interface, exactly. it turns out. Exactly. So. And so the access to mobile platforms and maybe in the future, you know, watches and, and things like that. I think that's that's exciting. I think it's... Can React Native do watch yet? Watch I stuff? don't know. If not, I imagine that soon because I would definitely... I one, would, one would think. But yeah, as you were highlighting, I think we at ThoughtBot and for our clients have had great success with React mm -hmm. Native. It's done that thing that it's supposed to do where it allows for rapid iteration, getting something to market quickly, being able to pivot onto the second platform pretty quickly. Right. So it's fantastic in, in that route. And mm -hmm. I don't think we've found any point where we're like, ah, man, wish we had done this one in native. Even like we've done some Bluetooth integration and other more complex needing hardware access features, and it's still gone very well for us. Yes. For the Bluetooth specifically, we did try and do all of that using a handful of different packages mm -hmm. and, and building it directly within the React Native side of things with JavaScript. And that did not go well. And we ended up having to dig into some of the nitty-gritty there to get it to work. Did we end up writing our own Bluetooth module or doing more low-level things and then exposing that back it was up a lot, to It was Native? a lot more of the low-level okay. side of things. And then so the, the overall shell was still in React Native. Mm -hmm. but there was. I wonder what the status of that is now, if the Bluetooth world has improved within React Native. It's Bluetooth, so it's not improved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mouse doesn't work most uh -huh. of the time. It's a right. weird thing that, like... I wish it did. Yeah, my headphones is to a point now where I will put both of them in my ears and the right one will turn on and the left one won't, which is just utterly frustrating. It's one like, of these days, software is just going to work, but today <laughs> is not that day. There was that really excellent blog post. I don't know if you read it. I'll have to find it and we can link to it in the show notes, but it was basically like everything is garbage. It's, it's you're describing a, a uh, sequence of blog posts, I think, uh -huh, on the internet, or, uh -huh. uh, but I don't know the one you're specifically okay. referring to, so I'm interested to it's read it. It's really good, but it's basically like, we can do better as professionals. Mm -hmm. Why is everything broken and yep. kind of all this stuff? So Yeah, I find that 
topic of everything is broken is an interesting one because it is kind of true. Yeah. But I feel yeah. like there's the positive or optimistic bent that we can mm-hmm. take. And it sounds like that was the tone of this one of we can right. do better. We should yep. do better. I actually think that like there are things that we're seeing now that are available to us as developers that allow for an easier transition. We, you know, we had talked earlier about Elixir and functional programming mm-hmm. and kind of in theory, pure functions are easier to test. It's controlled space. I think. Easier to reason about as the exactly. people say. Yeah. And I think like strongly typed languages kind of fall in that same bucket where if you're using a language that allows you to express thought in such a way that it's easy to reason about and it's easy to isolate what's going to happen, mm-hmm. it equips you to make better software design decisions. And I mm-hmm. think that's the direction that we will likely need to take as professionals is kind of shifting towards that a little bit more aggressively. Yep. That was actually a, a sort of subtle but pervasive theme throughout the conference mm-hmm. was various different strongly typed languages. There was a talk about Reason, yep. Reason ML for mm-hmm. uh, anyone out there, as well as TypeScript was mentioned a lot, a little bit of flow. I didn't see anyone who was talking about code that was saying like, and yeah, we're just writing JavaScript. Everyone was implying right. we use TypeScript to actually do this, or we use mm-hmm. flow, or we use Reason being, I think, like the most extreme example that we talked about there. But Yeah, Reason and Elm, I think, are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. It's also pure script, I want to say, at that end of this, like, yes, the correctness yeah. versus ease of use mm-hmm. spectrum or continuum that they're all yep. on. But definitely a theme, and obviously a strong theme here at ThoughtBot. That's something that we are interested in. Right. I think we're seeing good movements in the direction of ergonomics around strong type systems. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they have been great at the math, at the, right. like computational problem of ensuring that a system is fundamentally sound and correct. Right. But then how is I, as a developer, when I get one of these types wrong, how does that get provided back to me? Right. And I think like having worked in TypeScript, it's a good direction. But having also worked in Elm, I definitely favor Elm. Having worked in Haskell, you know, Haskell's been around for 20 some years. Like it's solid. It works. The ecosystem is arguably, yeah, there's more to be desired. Pure script, I think, is great in theory. Granted, I haven't played with it in probably like six to nine months, so it maybe bears revisiting. But I think of all of those languages, I found Elm to be the most approachable mm-hmm. based on the value that it provides in terms of safety. There's always going to be folks who compare Elm to Haskell and I think other languages, Pure Script, where it's like, oh, it doesn't have type classes or it doesn't have feature X but this other language does, I would prefer to have that feature. So I'm going to use this other language. It's like, okay, that's fine. And the reasoning isn't wrong, but I think for what we're doing and what we've seen with the different types of client projects we've done, Elm fits that bill very nicely in that it's relatively easy to onboard someone. One of our recent developers that we had hired at ThoughtBot, we onboarded him as his first project onto Elm. And he was writing Elm code like, basically the second week he was at the Welcome to the company. Yeah. Here is a compiler. Having zero experience with Elm. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to go and contribute and like wrote a significant portion of that Elm code base. So it's uh, it's awesome to see. Elm comes up actually a lot on on the various, the past few episodes. And one of the discussion points is just about how nice the compiler is and the feedback and the error messages and the the human-like prose of Mm -hmm. it. But it is interesting that like, I would strongly recommend that everyone be considering an option along the spectrum. Yep. And there's different trade-offs for all of them. Like Elm, I think, 
provides the best experience, both mm. in terms of optimizing for correctness, because right. Elm is very good at that. It, it mm -hmm. is strict and pure and all of those things that you want, but it is a little bit verbose due to the lack of type classes. That's one thing. It's a little bit more of an on-ramp than say like TypeScript is much closer to JavaScript. And therefore, if you've got a team of JavaScript developers and you want to try a new thing, right. you can actually do that more gradually. Whereas Elm is going to be a hard, like you have to transition the code base, not just a single file or anything yes. like that. Well, parts of a code base. Yeah, whichever part you want. Like you have to take some subsection of mm -hmm. it and do that. Whereas right. with TypeScript, you could just do a single file. But TypeScript is decidedly less correct or pure or yes. any of those things. Right. But additionally, Elm, as far as I understand it right now, is somewhat constrained to just target the web. Right. So we, well, we have written a React Native app in it, but uh -huh. after doing that, it works. It was a thing. Yep. Wouldn't necessarily recommend it again. So that's Purple Train for anyone out there. And we can link to some blog posts and conference talk about that. It was a very interesting experience. And I think it speaks to our desire to find more robust ways to build JavaScript applications. Right. But I think right now that's still work in progress and not something that we would recommend. Mm -hmm. At the other end of the spectrum, there's Scala.js, which is one that I'm super intrigued by. Because mm -hmm. I think Scala has a, a very strong, very correct type system mm -hmm. with a little bit more flexibility than an Elm or a Haskell. Yep. But it also can play across the platform. So we can build data pipelines using Scala. Sure. Then we can build our UIs using Scala.js. Uh, and granted, I, I haven't been able to dig into it as much as I would like. I think that might be a really good optimization mm -hmm. point. But Elm has been a great tool for us. We've, yeah. we've had a ton of success with it. And, and again, I've been impressed with the rate at which people can come on to Elm projects mm -hmm. because my experience going on to Haskell things, I felt a little bit more of a wall there when I tried to start Haskell projects. Yeah. But Elm has been much more welcoming as a technology. Right. Yeah. And I think like that's one of their primary areas of focus is how can we make the beginners onboarding very pleasant and then how do we continue to ensure that it's a pleasant experience as you become more advanced and experienced? Mm -hmm. You know, we've been writing Elm for three years, I think. It's mm. been a very, very, very long time. And I, I remember when I was talking to Joel, who's a developer here at ThoughtBot, when I was talking to Joel about it that, you know, that many years ago, my expression to him was basically like, tell me when it's real. Like, tell me when you can build more than just games. Because at that point they were focusing primarily on like platformer style games with sprites and all this stuff. And it's like, I need to build products for our clients. I remember having a similar takeaway. I think that was just a marketing it might have been. Up. Like yep. I remember been. very clearly being like, Elm, oh, that's that thing you can use for games. Right. And I think it was just an artifact of most of the examples that they showed on the Elm website were a Mario platformer right. and a couple other things. But right. I think it had all the same functionality. It back probably then. did. And I remember sort of a pivot in the marketing, like, here's a to do MVC as the first right. example that we're yep. showing. Because, yes, we can build web apps, but mm -hmm. also games. But and once it, I think once we saw oh, you can actually build applications for clients and deliver them with Elm. And we were able to kind of gauge, one, how quickly, again, we could onboard our teammates, how quickly we could onboard the client's team, and how quickly we could ship working client-side applications. We're like, oh, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. It's maybe not for all of our clients, but for the majority of them where they are building CRUD-based applications, like, yeah, it works really well. And so at that point, you know, that's when we started to see that shift. And I think between last year and this year in Boston alone, we've had probably eight to 10 clients using Elm. Wow. Either reaching out to us directly because of all of the blog posts that we've done and all of the conference talks that we've given 
primarily Joel, about Elm, but we have that experience now. So. I find it interesting that there's still like a 019 just came out and they're still not at a 1.0, which yeah. is kind of interesting because I feel like it has been a robust production ready system for a while. Mm-hmm. And actually 019 brought along some really impressive performance optimizations and reducing the bundle yes. size. Yep. And so I wonder if it's purposeful, like if there is anything that they're thinking, this is what we're targeting in order for a 1.0, or mm-hmm. if it's just like, eh, we don't really feel the need. It's a good question. I, to be frank, I don't stay as up to date with it as others do. I think Evan is, is fairly open about the discussions around what language features they're looking to support. I think mm-hmm. with 019 specifically, there was a big push towards improving the experience of writing single page apps. And so we see a lot of the API change to support like full-on browser applications where they were managing routes and kind of doing all of that stuff. And they moved a significant portion of that under kind of the Elmlang official GitHub and, and all of their core libraries so that they're able to own that and kind of control that interaction in a way that I think is is really great. I think one of the other big aspects of Elm 19 was they shifted away from allowing for native modules, which is one of the reasons why they were able to speed up the compiler and do some of the tree shaking and things like that, really improve now, that in experience. in Elm, a native module is JavaScript that is yes. written and maintained by the core team? Or, or regular developers. So prior to 019, you could write a bridge between Elm and raw JavaScript and package the entire thing up as an Elm package with vanilla JavaScript behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. With new versions of Elm, so 019 specifically, they removed that capability. That was a so, heck of a breaking change alongside right, the operator yeah. removal. Yeah, there were a number of people who are not pleased with the outcome. Mm-hmm. But I think by them controlling that ecosystem they can more confidently say, if you're writing an Elm application, it's going to work because yep. they're ultimately responsible for the JavaScript. So if it doesn't work, it's on them. It's not on some other member of the ecosystem that's written some plugin, that some package that doesn't work correctly. Literally the opposite of how NPM works. Mm-hmm. Tiny little packages, billions yeah. of them. We got our left pad incident, all those sort of things. Yes. Oh, left pad. I think ultimately it speaks to the experience that Evan and the rest of the Elm team, the developer experience that they want to provide. Mm -hmm. We were talking about designing systems earlier. They're designing a language and they want to control that and make sure that that's a great experience for newcomers and experienced Elm developers alike. And I think that's a, a great way to go about accomplishing that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's impressive to watch the the careful curation of a language mm-hmm. that they're doing, which definitely has caused some some unhappy folks on uh-huh. the internet. You take things away from people. They're That's never, the they're internet never. in general. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm, at this uh, point. I'm in that mode right now where I have this Vim plugin that I want to release, but I'm being I'm like, ah, no, I need a couple more days because this is not the public API that yep. I want to commit to. Right. The minute it is out there in the world, then I feel a certain responsibility to try to not break stuff. Yeah. Release a 001 release. It's a Vim plugin. They don't have versions. Oh, gosh. I mean, they can. I can say, quote, unquote, this is 001, but... Can you say it's alpha or unstable? (laughs) I can say anything I want about this (laughs) Vim plugin. That's fair. People will be like, cool, cool, but Uh, I'm going to I'm still going to use it anyway. Which, I mean, that's that's my goal. I think it is a useful thing, but I want to give myself a few days to try and uh, clean it up. That's fair. There's also some things that I wanted that I didn't have time to build in. Mm -hmm. So 
it's interesting. Every single thing that I do at this point in my life follows roughly the same pattern of, well, I started a Trello board and I made the columns and I'm prioritizing features and I have a line that is the MVP and I'm uh -huh. pushing things below that line as much as possible and trying to have the hard conversations with myself about right. what do we actually need here? Do you really need that to ship? Working at ThoughtBot has been good for me in all the ways. Right. That sort of mindset of how do we get something out there into the right. world. Mm -hmm. So I think earlier you like started the conversation with, we're still doing a lot of Ruby on Rails, uh -huh. which I think is an important theme. Like we've had two episodes recently, one about service-oriented architecture and mm -hmm. our general suggestion of like, what if we didn't, or at least not as a first pass? Yeah. Like let's start with one app that connects to a database and that's it. Uh -huh. Similarly, Matt Summoner and I a few episodes ago talked about client-side versus server-side development. And I think a theme from that one was like, yeah, no, we can totally still just render HTML on the server, send it to the browser, have forms and links and buttons and stuff. Surprise. And it works fantastically it well, particularly for getting products to market. Mm -hmm. But the world is definitely moving in a direction where we see more and more demand for client-side yep. apps, for richer experiences, all of that. So we've talked a little bit about React, a little bit about Elm, which mm -hmm. they're very similar, slightly different. Elm is like React, but with a Redux built in and some other stuff. And more safety, I think. Certainly more yeah. safety. We're doing very little Ember, Angular. I think those two stand out as yes. ones that we have done historically, but we're doing very little of right. at this point. Are we driving that? Is that from client requests? We're driving that. I think for both of those, and to be clear, that's for Boston specifically. I know that there are others in other offices who are actually pretty passionate about Ember, and there's not anything wrong with it. I think our experiences in Boston are leading us to avoid things like Ember. With Angular, that's a whole separate thing, but I think a lot of that was really around a lack of enjoyment of building products with that tool. I think with Ember, it was more, we were running into some of the edge cases that were really disheartening. But I think in both, that's driven not by our clients and more based on our recommendations to avoid those technologies. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, particularly with Ember, contrasting it with React, it's somewhat easy to say like, yeah, React's been great. But React is actually a tiny part of the equation. And right. just about every React app we do now has Redux. And Redux actually has some some heaviness to it. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually a talk at ReactConf by one of the Redux maintainers. It was a great talk. He did a, a great job of summarizing sort of state of the ecosystem, but also talking about like, here are some misconceptions about Redux. Let me right. just talk to you folks about what I think people get wrong. It was very interesting. I can link to, he wrote up a blog post about that, but talking about ways that we can simplify it, less boilerplate, all of that. But like Redux is an inherent part of almost every React app that right. we see. And when you think about Ember, I think one of the things that we struggled with a lot was Ember data. Yes. And yep, React that, has no corollary to that whatsoever. React's right. like, no, 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 you'll figure out the data part on your mm -hmm. own and have fun. My understanding, but, and you know way more about this than me, but I thought that Apollo was meant to have some sort of internal data or caching layer that, that sits atop kind of hides that from developers. Is that? Yes. So correct? Apollo is a GraphQL framework. So it's a client-side GraphQL framework, or I guess Apollo client, because they do have an Apollo server as well. Apollo client is a GraphQL client. It works with React, Angular, Ember. Actually, you can do it with any of them. Okay. It maintains an internal cache. It mm -hmm. handles the HTTP requests, deals with life cycles and states and all that kind of right. stuff. So it is a, a solution that you can use in the React world, or frankly, any of those worlds. Mm -hmm. But it's definitively not built into React. It's a right. you know, separate project that... Okay. Given the option, that is my preferred way to build client-side applications mm -hmm. at this point is React plus Apollo, ideally with a little bit of TypeScript or something like that mixed in. Right. But in the sense of if we're looking at Ember, 
Ember tried to answer that as part of the framework. Their goal has been to provide the holistic, everything built in. You've got routing, you've got the view layer, you've got the data layer, you've got all of these mm -hmm. things. And I think they've historically struggled as the community has been like, oh, this GraphQL thing's cool, let's go towards that. Yep. Oh, this Redux thing is great, let's do that. And so like Ember had the transition to data down actions up, which mm -hmm. was very much in React and Redux type, embracing those sort of patterns. Right. But it is interesting to see the shift that we've had internally mm -hmm. around those technologies. The one that actually stands out as slightly different that we have seen some interest in is Vue, uh -huh. which I don't know if you've played around with Vue, but I know we've done some work. Very here. briefly, yes. It's interesting. It looks a lot like Angular and data binding to yep. me. Yep. And I've been bitten by string templates mm -hmm. and by data binding, two-way data binding and the magic of data binding. Mm -hmm. I'm just scared of them at this point. And I think I found other solutions, but it's interesting that like Vue has had a, a meteoric rise. Mm -hmm. I'm not referencing Meteor, the framework, which is a different framework that became Apollo, I think. I don't know. It's hard to keep up with the things in this world. But that is one that I think we have done a bit more work in. Yes. I think for certain types of problems, it is a totally viable solution. I think... You know, if you're sprinkling some JavaScript on a page and you don't want to use vanilla JavaScript, you do want to use something where there is a little bit more interactivity. I think Vue is reasonable. Mm -hmm. I think for the majority of the products that we build, we do want something that's maybe a little bit more heavy lifting. When you say heavy lifting, you mean like what the framework provides? So Vue, I might consider if I had one or two pages across the entire application that needed a smattering of JavaScript. Mm -hmm. So it was some additional interaction, but it wasn't, I wasn't building a single page application. If I was building a single page app or it was like there was a significant amount of interaction, even if it was isolated to a one page, I might reach for something like React and Redux or Elm. But if it's just a little bit of interaction, I wouldn't rule it out. I think that, that it would work well for something like that. Again, I haven't really worked with it, but my understanding is Vue, actually somewhat unlike React, does have answers to a lot of these things. So like Vue has Vuex, mm -hmm. which is a state management library inspired by Redux, but fitting in with the, the Vue model. Vue, V-U-E, not V-I-E-W. That got yep. weird. Uh, <laughs> fitting it with the way, the paradigm that Vue uses, as well as I think they have a routing thing and they're all part of the core like GitHub organization or the core mm. package set. So I think it's a little more complete than React in that sense. Like uh -huh. you can take whichever of the pieces you need. And if you want right. just like a page with nice interactivity and reactiveness, you can just use Vue, but then you can layer on Vuex if you need more state management and you can add on the routing layer if you want to mm -hmm. do more of that. But again, I haven't, I haven't really worked with it. I haven't either. Not enough to speak to larger size applications. Mm -hmm. It's only been, again, kind of that little smattering of JavaScript kind of embedded on individual pages. As we talk about all of these different things, it sort of brings to light the theme that I hear in the community of JavaScript fatigue, uh -huh. uh, or generally like framework fatigue and stuff's moving too fast. I don't necessarily feel that. I kind of, I like the things that are happening. I'm mm -hmm. happy to see the improvements. And admittedly, it's a lot to keep up with. But at the same time, like part of our answer is, I don't know, just use Rails. It'll be fine. Yep. Use tried and true things that you know that are more stable and changing less rapidly, but right. still are great solutions. But if you want the new... Thing. Like, I'm excited that there are new things being developed constantly. Yep. And I think there's some amount of riskiness that one can take on for any particular product they're working on. And so if 
you want to isolate that riskiness, choosing something like Rails as the back end and then choosing Reason or Elm for the front end. That seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. If it's like, well, I'm going to explore this new back end. Yeah. (laughs) No pun intended, I promise. If you were to choose like some esoteric back end and some esoteric front end and like protobufs and kind of all these other technologies where it's like, all of this stuff is kind of the latest and greatest, in theory, the best way to use technology, but we haven't done any of it. Like mm-hmm. that seems overly risky. But it's yeah. like if you're building a greenfield product, Rails will get you there like 90% of the time, probably more than that. Especially if you're learning very early on whether or not there's a product market fit and you have customers who are interested in paying you for the product that's irrelevant we're gonna just have vc come along and save us <laughs> like rail seems fine mm-hmm. and then you know gravitate towards graphql or elm or whatever your heart's desire is it's like this seems like it's incrementally better than other ways in which we can deliver products so that you can take risks on certain areas but not every area of mm-hmm. the application because those risks are, I think they're necessary. I think as developers, it's our responsibility to ensure the products work. And mm-hmm. we've seen, you know, in dynamic languages, there are issues sometimes. And so seeing things like GraphQL crop up, you know, because there's schemas, there's types, I think that's great. You know, the same thing with Elm or Reason mm-hmm. or TypeScript, that's great. You know, if we can have marginally more confidence with or without tests, that what we're writing is going to work when we put it in front of customers, I think that's a good direction to move in. Yep. I think what you're saying about sort of have a risk budget with any new projects, it feels like one of those informal but reasonably well-solidified rules within ThoughtBot that like we can try out one new technology Mm -hmm. per project. The majority should be stable and it shouldn't be like the foundational thing. Right. But we can and likely should try out something new on each project to try and you know keep that moving forward. Mm-hmm. Additionally, we have Fridays, which allow us to explore all these things. But I think that idea of you get a risk budget and right. you should spend it wisely and be researching on the side and you know mm-hmm. reading what people in the community are doing. Before we started this conversation, we were actually talking about what we wanted to discuss and we brought up the ThoughtWorks technology radar, mm-hmm. which is one example of a company actually taking an explicit, like, we're going to formalize this and define across frameworks and languages and process and all of that. What are we doing? What are we moving away from? Right. So this is ThoughtWorks, which Martin Fowler is one of the principals at, I want to say something mm-hmm. like that, but a great organization. That's something that like I try and keep an eye on that as one company that's being both public and more explicit with their, like, right. what are we doing and what are we not doing, which mm-hmm. is equally as important. Yep. But it is it is a little hard to keep up with all these yes. things. Stuff yep. moves quickly. Yeah. I remember you mentioned Parcel yep. pretty recently, and it's like, oh, I've been doing Webpack for a couple of years now. <laughs> yep. Why can't we just keep doing that? Webpack seems to be working fine. Parcel's yeah. great for anyone out there. It's mm-hmm. a zero-config JavaScript bundler, but it now, like, it does Elm. It recently mm-hmm. added that in the most recent version, and Babel 7, so that means TypeScript just works. Actually, I think yep. it's been TypeScript the whole time, but zero-config is a thing that I like in tools. Yeah, yeah. There was another one that I said to you recently, and I think you yelled at me when I said it. <laughs> you had spent a <laughs> day fighting against Uglify.js, and oh, yes. you got to the end of the day, yep. and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I don't think they're using Uglify anymore. I think it's Terser now. Uh-huh. And you may have had some choice words (laughs) in a friendly way. And a like, are you kidding me? Yeah. But yeah, I think in some ways maybe we're moving too fast Mm -hmm. and a little more stability would be nice. I guess I could see that. I think it's good though. I think as these various communities evolve and they see what works and what doesn't work, 
they're iterating and they're moving forward. They're not saying, well, this is okay and we're going to be complacent. We're going to be fine with okay. It's no, this is a problem. We're going to identify those problems and then move forward. How do we make this better? And I think the end result is that things move very quickly sometimes. And that's the cost of innovation. Cost of doing business on yep. the web. Yep. I, for one, welcome our strongly typed hot module reloading overlords. I do too. It's wonderful. There are few times in the more than 15 years I've been doing professional web development that I have found it as enjoyable as writing Elm and having a compiler um, format and kind of so many different things. The computer just does all this work for me. It's like, I don't need to think about the minutia. I can think about the problem at hand and then focus on solving that problem. I don't need to worry about the compiler. I don't need to worry about making typos because all of the stuff is going to get caught for me and it's wonderful. Good God, do I love auto formatters. Mm -hmm. And now, like, I find myself every once in a while back in languages that don't have them. Yep. And it is physically painful. It's one of yep. those things that, like, you don't recognize it until you see what could be. Right. And then suddenly your editor just magically reformats yeah. the thing consistently every time you save. And you go back to something else. You're like, oh, no. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. Yep. I mean, with Prettier, there's Elm format. There's Go format. Uh, Python has theirs. Pretty much yep. uh, Ruby is one of the few languages that I see with the least. There is a tool called Rufo. Yeah, I've been using Rufo for probably three, four months now. My only complaint about it would be that it's not as opinionated as I would like. It allows for multiple variants of Mm -hmm. a certain syntactic construct. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, 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 I want want one and only one way to represent this code. But it's better than nothing. It's progress. It's progress. Ever marching forward. Yes. Well, with that, I think that's a perfect point to wrap up. We've got a boatload of show notes to collect here. I talked about a lot of things. But Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, you can leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed. I'm at Chris Toomey, T-O-O-M-E-Y. Josh, you are? At Joshua Clayton. And you can also hit us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.